Hello, this is Father John Arthur or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our fourth program in a series on male and female, he created them, the theology of the body, the 130 some odd conferences given by Pope John Paul II between 1979 and 1984. We're using the edition edited by Professor Michael Waldstein, published by the Daughters of St. Paul in the year 2006. The Perspective of the Redemption of the Body, St. Paul's Letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 23. When Christ, appealing to the beginning, directs the attention of his interlocutors to the words written in Genesis, chapter 2, verse 24, he orders them, in some sense, to pass beyond the boundary that runs in the Yahwist text of Genesis between man's first and second situation. He does not approve what Moses had allowed because of hardness of heart, and appeals to the words of the first divine order expressly linked in this text with man's state of original innocence. This means that this order has not lost its force. Although man has lost his primeval innocence, Christ's answer is decisive and clear. For this reason, we must draw the normative conclusions from it, which have an essential significance not only for ethics, but above all for the theology of man and the theology of the body, which as a particular aspect of theological anthropology is constituted on the foundation of the word of God who reveals himself. We will try to draw such conclusions in the next meeting. When Christ responds to the question about the unity and indissolubility of marriage, he appeals to the words of Genesis about the subject of marriage. In our two foregoing reflections, we analyze the so-called Eloist text, Genesis chapter 1, and the Yahwist text, Genesis chapter 2. Today we want to draw some conclusions from these analyses. When Christ appeals to the beginning, he asks his interlocutors to go in some way beyond the boundary running in Genesis between the state of original innocence and the state of sinfulness that began with the original fall. Symbolically, this boundary can be linked with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which delimits two diametrically opposed situations in the Yahwist text, the situation of original innocence and that of original sin. These situations have their own dimension in man, in his innermost being, knowledge, consciousness, choice, and decision, and all of this in relationship with God, the Creator, who in the Yahwist text, Genesis chapters 2 and 3, is at the same time the God of the covenant, of the most ancient covenant of the Creator with his creature, that is, 
with man. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil as an expression and symbol of the covenant with God broken in man's hearts marks out two diametrically opposed situation and sets them against each other, that of original innocence and that of original sin, together with man's hereditary sinfulness deriving from it. Yet Christ's words, which appeal to the beginning, allows us to find an essential continuity in man and a link between these two different states or dimensions of the human being. The state of sin is part of historical man, of the human beings about whom we read in Matthew chapter 19, that is, of Christ's interlocutors then, as well as of every other potential or actual interlocutor of all times of history, and thus, of course, also of man today. Yet, in every man, without exception, this state, the historical state, plunges its roots deeply into his theological prehistory, which is the state of original innocence. It is not a question of mere dialectic. The laws of knowing correspond to those of being. It is impossible to understand the state of historical sinfulness without referring or appealing to the state of original, in some sense prehistoric, and fundamental innocence. And, in fact, Christ appeals to it. The emergence of sinfulness as a state, as a dimension of human existence, has thus, from the beginning, been linked with man's real innocence as an original and fundamental state, as a dimension of being created in the image of God. And this point applies not only to the case of the first man, male and female, as dramatis personae, and protagonists of the events described in the Yahwist text of Genesis chapters 2 and 3, but also to the entire historical course of human existence. Thus, historical man is rooted, so to speak, in his revealed theological prehistory. And for this reason, every point of his historical sinfulness must be explained both in the case of the soul and of the body, with reference to original innocence. One can say that this reference is a co-inheritance of sin, and precisely of original sin. While in every historical man this sin signifies a state of lost grace, it also carries with itself a reference to that grace which was precisely the grace of original innocence. When Christ, according to Matthew chapter 19, appeals to the beginning, he does not point only to the state of original innocence as a lost horizon of human existence in history. To the words that he speaks with his own lips, we have the right to attribute at the same time the whole eloquence of the mystery of redemption. In fact, already in the context of the same Yahwist text of Genesis chapters 2 and 3, 
we witness the moment in which man, male and female, after having broken the original covenant with God as creator, receives the first promise of redemption in the words of the so-called Proto-Evangelium in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and begins to live in the theological perspective of redemption. Thus, historical man, both Christ's interlocutors then, about whom Matthew chapter 19 speaks, and human beings today, participates in this perspective. He participates not only in the history of human sinfulness as a hereditary and at the same time personal and unrepeatable subject of this history, but he also participates in the history of salvation, here too as its subject and co-creator. He is thus not merely shut out from original innocence due to his sinfulness, but also at the same time open to the mystery of the redemption realized in Christ and through Christ. Paul the author of the letter to the Romans, expresses this perspective of redemption in which historical man lives when he writes, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Romans chapter 8 verse 23. We cannot forget this perspective as we follow the words of Christ, who, in his dialogue on the indissolubility of marriage, appeals to the beginning. If that beginning indicated only the creation of man as male and female, if, as we already mentioned, Christ only led his interlocutors across the boundary of man's state of sin to original innocence, and did not open at the same time the perspective of a redemption of the body, his answer would not be understood adequately. Precisely this perspective of the redemption of the body guarantees the continuity and the unity between man's hereditary state of sin and his original innocence. Although within history this innocence has been irredeemably lost by him, it is also evident that Christ, most of all, has the right to answer the question presented to him by the teachers of the law and of the covenant, as we read in Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10, in the perspective of the redemption on which the covenant itself rests. When in the context of the theology of bodily man substantially delineated in this way, we reflect about the method of further analyses of the revelation of the beginning, in which the appeal to the first chapters of Genesis is essential. We must immediately turn our attention to a factor that is particularly important for theological interpretation. Important because it consists in the relation between revelation and experience. In the interpretation of the revelation about man, and above all about the body, we must, for understandable reasons, appeal to experience, because bodily man is perceived by us above all in experience. In the light of the fundamental considerations just mentioned, 
we have every right to be convinced that this historical experience of ours must in some way stop at the threshold of man's original innocence because it remains inadequate to it. Yet in the light of the same introductory considerations, we must reach the conviction that in this case, our human experience in some way is a legitimate means for a theological interpretation and that in a certain sense, it is an indispensable point of reference to which we must appeal in the interpretation of the beginning. A more detailed analysis of the text will allow us to have a clearer view of it. It seems that the words of Romans chapter 8 verse 23 just quoted best express the direction of our research centered on the revelation of that beginning to which Christ appealed in his dialogue about the indissolubility of marriage. Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10. All our further analyses, also based on the first chapter of Genesis, will almost necessarily reflect the truth of the Pauline words, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly while we wait for the redemption of our bodies. If we place ourselves in this position, so profoundly in harmony with experience, the beginning must speak to us with the great wealth of the light that comes from revelation, to which, above all, theology desires to respond. The continuation of the analyses will explain for us why and in what sense this must be a theology of the body. With these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, ended his fourth catechesis on the theology of the body. I'd like to go over a few of the high points uh, in what time we have remaining. But first, I must apologize for our third catechesis, which I cut short. The beginning of today's program, this fourth part of the theology of the body of Pope John Paul II, actually began with the end of the third catechesis. I apologize. Again, we see in this catechesis, Pope John Paul II speaking to us about original innocence. Ten times he speaks about the primeval innocence, our first situation as human beings. This is the way God made us. He made us good. We are part of the good creation. God saw all that he had made, and it was good. We were created without sin. And while that is the good news, there's also the need for redemption, and that is our original sin, our state of sinfulness, our second situation, consequence of the original fall. There are consequences of original sin, which the Holy Father didn't get into in this talk, suffering, death, ignorance, and a tendency to do evil, which is called concupiscence. There will be more on that later. Concupiscence, a tendency to do evil, a tendency to sin. There are two sides of the same coin, the original innocence and the original sin. But so many times the Holy Father speaks of the original innocence because that's how it was in the beginning. And Christ our Lord appeals to the beginning when asked about holy marriage. This is the theology of the body, and holy marriage 
presupposes a body. The body of the husband, the body of the wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For this reason a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. It was for the hardness of their hearts that Moses allowed a bill of divorce. Christ appeals to the beginning and our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, has focused our attention on what is meant by the beginning. God's original plan for us, for our well-being, for our salvation. This theology of the body is twofold. As theology, it's about God. And theology of the body means the body speaks to us. Our bodies part of God's good creation, God's revelation in his creation, but also the body of Christ, crucified and glorified, spouse of Mother Church, for whom he gave his life on Calvary. He is ever united to his bride, Mother Church, in an indissoluble bond, which is then reflected in that of husbands and wives. Pope John Paul II, in this fourth catechesis, also uses the phrase theology of bodily man, reminding us that we are not just our souls, and we are not just our bodies. We are body-soul composite. Not only does the Holy Father focus our attention on the theology of the body, theology of bodily man, but also on the theology of man, what it means to be made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, what is our inmost being? In whom do we live and move and have our being? God himself, the eternal being, the source of all being, all that is. How did God reveal himself to Moses? I am who am. Tell them I am sent you. That's part of the theology of man, who is a being, a human being, a rational being, one who is able to know and to love, one who is able to come to know, who is conscious of what he knows, and we know that God is conscious of us since we are made in his image. We are not just conscious of God, but God knows us, and better than we know ourselves. This is the historical man whom Christ spoke with in the gospel, and not just the men of old with whom he spoke, but those whom he speaks with now, you who listen on the radio or on the web, I who speak, Christ speaks to us. We are people in history, even as Christ was a man among men. And this historical man, this is a continuity with Adam. This is a unity of the whole race, from Adam to the last man, until the return of Christ. Men, women, children, boys and girls of every age, all made to the image and likeness of God, to sing his praises, to give him glory. Pope John Paul II likewise speaks about interpretation, both a theological interpretation and the interpretation of revelation. This is a very important concept, not only theologically but philosophically interpretation, the hermeneutics. 
what is meant by what is said, what is meant by what is written. How is it that we understand? It's part of our knowing God and our loving God, our being known by God and loved by God. For the sacred scripture, our saving faith speaks to us about ourselves, what it means to be a human being, and it also speaks to us about our bodies, our corporality. We are not just a soul. We are not just a spirit. We are enfleshed, incarnate, both body and soul. These things we learn from an intense study of the first chapters of Genesis and the whole of the Gospels, where we discover Christ, who received his body from Our Lady, the Virgin Mary, when she said yes to God's plan, having it announced to her by the angel Gabriel. Mary said, Let it be done to me according to thy word. And the word became flesh, and dwelt amongst us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory. He is the Son of Man, Son of David, Son of Abraham, known to be the carpenter's son, St. Joseph his foster father. His blood was red, pouring down Calvary's cross. And on the third day he rose again in his body to redeem all flesh, if we allow him, if we approach him in faith and humility, seeking his mercy. The Holy Father has analyzed sacred scripture and sacred tradition. He's looked at human experience draw your attention again to what Pope John Paul II had to say about experience in this catechesis, for he mentions it seven times, and Professor Waldstein adds an eighth in his footnote. The Holy Father reminds us of the importance of experience in the fourth paragraph when he speaks about we must immediately turn our attention to a factor that is particularly important for theological interpretation, how to interpret things about God and the knowledge of God. Important because it consists in a relation between revelation and experience. Remember, this is the Pope who would later write that important encyclical about the relationship between faith and reason, faith believing in God and all that God has revealed. So here we have a corollary, a complementary passage of the theology of the body. In the interpretation, or the hermeneutic, of the revelation about man and about all about the body, we must, for understandable reasons, appeal to experience. Everybody has experience, huh? so we can always look at that. The important thing is to interpret rightly. Bodily man is perceived, above all, in experience. I see your blue eyes. I hear your voice. I see you are so tall. I see your sunburnt or pale. I see your leg in a cast. There is a historical experience we have. My history, our history, the history of this land. These are experiences from which we can draw, hopefully for our good. In the light of the same introductory considerations, John Paul wanted us to reach the conviction that in this case our human experience is in some way a legitimate means for theological interpretation. It's not the only way. It's not the exclusive way. It may have some way. Here we see a phenomenological approach, I think. That's my experience of it.
If we place ourselves in this position so profoundly in harmony with experience, the beginning must speak to us with the great wealth of light that comes from revelation. I have experienced hearing the word of God, sacred scripture. I have experienced a life of faith, and I have met others who have similarly experienced the faith, the word of God, sacred scripture. I have experienced others who have lived out holiness bodily. Pope John Paul II lived to be so old, born in 1920, dying in 2005. He had many years of history on God's good earth and many experiences to boot. Life under the Nazis, life under the communist, life with his parents, even though his dear mother died so young. Experience as a young priest. Experience as a professor. Experience as a bishop, not only in Krakow, first as an auxiliary and then as the ordinary, but then even as the bishop of Rome, the visible head of the church on earth. These experiences allowed our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, to contemplate many things. How many confessions was he able to hear? How many repentant sinners was he able to absolve? Those who came with sins which involved their bodies, not taking care of one's health, overindulging in food or drink, not observing sexual purity or modesty or chastity, things which are an integral part of the theology of the body. Our Holy Father calls us to virtue. He calls us to excellence, for he speaks to us of Christ, for Christ, whose vicar he is, whom he calls us to worship and adore. When we bother reading or studying the sure and certain teachings of the church, it is because Jesus Christ has said, he who hears you, hears me. This fourth catechesis is focused on St. Paul's letter to the Roman, the perspective of the redemption of the body, the perspective, the way things look. We look beyond the appearances, but we start with the appearances. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, while we wait for the redemption of our bodies. This inward groaning, that's very corporeal. Elsewhere we know, we do not know how to pray as we ought. It is the Spirit which groans in us. The first fruits of the Spirit we have, given us in baptism, renewed at the altar and in the confessional. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. We have been redeemed on Good Friday on Calvary's cross. We have been redeemed with the saving waters poured over us. We are being redeemed by God's grace as we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, and we hope, we long for salvation on that day which has no end, when God will be all in all. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. For our beloved dead who have already gone to their eternal reward await the resurrection of the just on the last day. That is our prayer. That is part of what it means by the beginning. 
Christ our Lord was from all eternity one with the Father and the Spirit as the eternal word, but in the fullness of time he became man, which was the beginning of our salvation. In our next program, we'll begin the second part of chapter 1 of part 1 of John Paul's Theology of the Body, moving from what is meant by beginning to the meaning of original solitude, a twofold context. Hopefully these presentations on the theology of the body will help us all to live better the gospel, not only in our hearts and our souls, but in our bodies as well. Until next time, God bless you.